All right. Well, today's sermon is entitled, One Thing is Needed, with the subtext, That Good Part. And maybe some of you are already familiar with the story I'm going with this. Uh, these, these are words straight from the Bible, but if not, you will see shortly. In the classic musical, Fiddler on the Roof, a husband and wife have two daughters who are falling in love with young men. And the, the father, the husband, he notices how happy his daughters are. So he turns to his wife and asks the simple question, do you love me? Do you love me? She responds, do I love you? For 25 years, I've washed your clothes, cooked your meals, cleaned your house, given you children, milked your cow. After 25 years, why talk about love right now? Do I love him? For 25 years, I've lived with him, fought with him, starved with him. 25 years, my bed is his. If that's not love, what is? To this, the husband nervously and timidly asks, then you love me? If you understand love, then you understand that the wife here is missing the point. True love is only complete when the duties of love are driven by the delights of love. The wife in this musical is a parable for all of us. Caught up in the pressure of daily responsibilities, distractions, and the tyranny of the urgent, which, by the way, is the title of a tremendous little book, our most important relationships grow dull and flat. All the fizz goes out. What used to bring us delight is now seen as nothing more than duty. What used to stir our affections is now seen as nothing more than annoyance. When we prioritize the duties of love and cease to nurture the delights of love, what was once our greatest source of companionship becomes our greatest source of loneliness. I admit that I have fallen into this trap Many times. But over the past few months, I have been going through a ruthless elimination of hurry in my life. And it's been an immense help. An immense help. And you know, my mother has experienced something similar in her life. And I know that as a pastor, I am never supposed to use my wife as a sermon illustration. So I'm not going to do that. But the Bible also says that when a husband and wife cleave together, that they leave behind their parents. So I'm going to use my mother as a sermon illustration. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Well, I'm, I'm not kidding, and I am. I'm not kidding that I'm going to use my mother, but I am kidding in the fact that I did reach out to her. I did ask her permission. I did let her know what illustration I was going to use. So I'm, I'm going to use this with her permission. You know, I, I, uh, looking back through my life, Thanksgiving and Christmas were always high times. They were the times of family gathering, fun, and most importantly, being raised in an Italian household, food. Food was always the, the centerpiece of our families getting together. And my mother has always been a gracious host. My mother has always been a great entertainer. 
And so as I look back through the years, I remember Thanksgiving, I remember Christmas holidays, and I remember my mother, my grandmother, my aunt, all slaving away in the kitchen, working on the food, making sure that it was hot and tasty and ready to be served at the right time, that everything was perfect, everything was in place. And so they would slave away in the kitchen while the rest of us family played games and had conversations and, and, and just connected with each other. Then we'd all sit down together and eat a meal. And immediately following the meal, before all the plates were even empty sometimes, my mother would go back into the kitchen. She'd be there in the kitchen and, and she would then start cleaning, cleaning the dishes and the silverware, the pots and the pans, the stovetops, the countertops. And as soon as she was done cleaning, it was on to the next thing. And that next thing was preparing the desserts, bringing them out, cutting the pies, cutting the cakes, stacking the cookies and the fudge. And then maybe she'd get a little rest. Then maybe she'd get some time with with family. It was exhausting, and and though she was a gracious host and a, a, a fine entertainer, she lost a lot of Intimacy. She lost a lot of memory. She lost a lot of time with the people that she loved so much. But over the past few years, she started to make some changes in connection with that. And we as a family, we started to, to uh, practice a little more teamwork, to help each other in the kitchen and to lighten her load. And so while she's still in the kitchen, she's still doing some cooking and some serving. She's also getting that time with family. Everything doesn't have to be so perfect anymore. And I know that it's been a tremendous blessing to her and to all of us to get to spend more time with her. And one instance in particular, over the past few years, especially the last two years, she's been able to have more time to connect with one of my nieces, her granddaughter. And they've been able to connect in a way that I don't believe would have been possible if she continued slaving away in the kitchen at all hours. And so she's been able to build this beautiful relationship with her granddaughter because she realized that there is a, a, a loss that comes from entertaining, and that there's a difference between entertaining and hospitality. It's important to know our weaknesses. This is why I, I share this illustration. I, I hope that it's helpful to you. And now I want you to ask yourself this question. Are you a task person or a people person? Are you a task person or a people person? Knowing the answer to this can help you begin your journey today on these matters. Depending on your answer, I want you to think about how this might impact how you relate to others and even how you relate to God. How does it affect your intimacy? Now, I know that the, short, the story that I just shared, it had to do with human relationships, but it can also bleed over into our relationship with God. When we lose our intimacy with God, he isn't the one that has moved away from us. That falls on you and me. And so, can the Bible offer insight? I believe the answer is yes. Yes, it can. Luckily, we have the story of Jesus' interaction with Martha and Mary to help us to see this issue a little more clearly. So we're going to move into the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, starting with verse 38. 
Now it happened as they went that he, Jesus, entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. So like the wife in Fiddler on the Roof, Martha is emotionally and relationally impaired because of her self-induced performance fatigue. Am I touching a nerve on anyone here? Can anyone relate to this? Her anxiety and frustration are palpable as she works hard and alone to serve her guests. Now, as Luke describes it, she is busy with, quote unquote, much serving. And for this, we typically read this account. We read this story and then we criticize her, right? She's doing it all wrong. But I don't think Jesus was criticizing her for being busy. Now, let me give a little context to my reasoning on that matter. The Greek word that is used to describe Martha's serving is diakonio, diakonio. And every time this word is used in the Bible, it is used in a positive sense. When Jesus describes himself as not coming to be served, but to serve, he uses the word diakonio. When Paul lays out the qualifications for deacons, a role to help serve the church, he uses the word diakonio. And when he commends Phoebe as a faithful servant in her local church, he calls her a diakonon. So let's not dismiss Martha as being sinful or being untrue to Jesus. She needs some credit and some grace, (laughs) don't we all? Martha is welcoming her guests, practicing the gospel virtue of hospitality. And when Jesus addresses her by saying her name twice, this is not some put down or or some, some way of him showing his disappointment. In Hebrew culture, the repetition of a person's name is actually a term of endearment. Jesus is gently reaching out to her, not scolding her. It's a gesture of kindness and compassion to Martha, and I believe also to us. Martha, Martha, before you try to change the world, you must first let me change you. Martha, Martha, before you make your mark on others, you must first allow me to make my mark on you. Martha, Martha, before you get busy to make things better, you must let me make things better for you. Martha, Martha, before you can serve and feed me, you must first allow me to serve and feed you. You see, Martha being a busybody is not her issue. Her issue is that she has a busy heart. As Luke tells us, she is 
distracted with much serving. And because of this, her very legitimate life-giving diaconal service is soured. She's working from a chaotic center and seeking to create order from a chaotic core. She's so busy and distracted by secondary things that she has lost sight of the first thing, namely the love that brought her into relationship to friendship with Jesus in the first place. Jesus's wish, hope, and desire is that we do not lose that love. When I read Revelation chapter two, verses two through five, I imagine that Jesus is talking to Martha. I imagine that Jesus is talking to us. It says this, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works or else I will come to you and quickly remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus' words to the church in Ephesus are rooted in the same longing that he had for Martha. Jesus saw Martha. Jesus sees us. He really sees us in our striving to be faithful in our efforts to make a meaningful contribution to his kingdom. He sees how hardworking we can be, how devoted, how resilient, and how faithful we are in our many efforts. He sees us walking side by side with him. But when we walk to him, with him side by side and not face to face, it's only a matter of time before we and Jesus are back to back. Can you hear the heart crying beneath Martha's words when she says, Lord, do you not care? Do you not care? There is pain there. She is after something more than just mere relief from her hard work. She feels that something is missing and what she wants is recognition. Recognition. She wants a simple pat on a back, a, a, a smile thrown her way. She seeks affirmation, approval, and affection. And she is using her busyness, her productivity as a path to receive recognition. The sad part is that the recognition, the pat on the back, the smile, the affirmation, approval, and affection she craves and tries to earn by her hard labors of love is already in her possession. She's already got it. She has forgotten what is already hers. Now, Martha's sister, Mary, she ceases her work when Jesus enters the house. And this is what separates true hospitality from entertaining. When our mindset is to simply entertain our guests, everything must be tidy and just right. 
But when our aim is hospitality, we will sometimes leave a floor unswept or dishes unwashed or furniture unarranged. We shift our focus from preparation time to FaceTime. Mary leaves her serving to sit at the feet of Jesus. Her non-negotiable is not her hard labor or her to-do list. Her non-negotiable is being with Jesus. Mary had guests in her house. She had many things on her plate, and there were multiple competing options to vie for her time. But sitting at the feet of Jesus is the one thing that she won't set aside. Aim first at delight, and you will get duty thrown in. Aim first at duty, and you will get neither. Now, it might not appear this way to Martha, but by sitting at the feet of Jesus, Mary actually becomes more productive and more equipped to serve with more energy, endurance, faithfulness, and passion. The 12th chapter of John's gospel shows this to be true. There we find Mary once again seated at the feet of Jesus, but this time she is actively serving him with generosity, worship, and affection by pouring out a pound of perfume on him. Mary's delight in Jesus is precisely what energizes her zeal to serve. The more time we spend with Jesus, the more time we change. He, he rubs off on us. While Mary is trying to be, or, sorry, while Martha, while Martha is trying to be like Jesus, Mary is spending time with Jesus. Yet in being with him, Mary becomes like him. Mary was one of the hostesses in the home, Right? So how did she find the freedom to stop working and linger with Jesus instead of doubling down on her busyness? This question is important because the answer is also the key to understand how we, too, can learn to love as Jesus loves. Like Mary, we gain the freedom to stop and the energy to love by becoming convinced that, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, we are loved, we have always been loved, and we will always be loved by God. We are already approved of, already highly esteemed, already cherished and loved and embraced by Jesus. Christ proved this, and while we were yet sinners... He died for us. Now, it's easy to connect Mary with a more, you know, touchy-feely faith and less with a faith founded on doctrine. But we don't have to downplay doctrine in order to focus on love. Love is the doctrine at the core of Christ's teachings. And when, G and when Mary sat at Jesus' feet, what did he give her? He gave her Doctrine. Luke tells us that as she sat at Jesus' feet and listened to his teaching. His teaching. It's not relationship versus doctrine. It's both connected. We need to live with our hearts and our minds. 
Matthew 22, 37 through 39 says, Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Romans 12, 2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And 2 Corinthians 10, 5, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. In our legitimate desire to encounter Jesus, we must pursue the encounter through the avenue of prayer coming from the heart, combined with the teachings of Jesus, a.k.a. doctrine that renews our mind. Two sides of the same coin, right? Loving God with heart and soul is intertwined with loving God with our mind. The way to avoid legalism or a dead Pharisaic religion is not to avoid doctrine, but rather to pursue a mind shaped by sound doctrine, pursue healthy truth. Our beliefs and actions are two sides of the same coin. And doctrine is like the skeleton of our faith. Our skeleton holds up and supports the rest of our body. But if all we see is the skeleton, then the body is malnourished or dead. It's the same with doctrine. If doctrine is the only visible part of our Christianity, then our Christianity is malnourished or dead. But for Mary, it was the skeleton of healthy doctrine, the teaching she got at the feet of Jesus that was her firm foundation. It was his teaching that provided the basis for the organs, the muscles, the tendons, and the skin of her faith to move out into the world in strength and power. It was at Jesus' feet that Mary learned she was deeply and dearly loved. But that's not all she learned. At Jesus' feet, Mary also learned that Jesus liked her. And when a person knows they are liked, it changes everything. I like how Brennan Manning puts it in his book, Abba's Child, page 46. Tenderness awakens within the security of knowing we are thoroughly and sincerely liked by someone. The mere presence of that special someone brings an inward sigh of relief and a strong sense of feeling safe. Now, Manning here is doing nothing but echoing scripture. We are told that in Christ, we are the apple of God's eye. We are told that he takes great delight in us. We are told that he rejoices over us with singing. We are told that he has similar love toward us as a bridegroom does for the bride. Romans 8 reminds us that his love is so strong, his liking of us is so strong that there is literally nothing in all of creation that can separate us from him. So my question for you is this. What if you really believed this? What if you really believed this? Think about that for a second. What if you really believe that God, through the generous love and sacrifice of Jesus, deeply likes you? 
What if you really believed that in the sight of God, you have nothing to prove, that being loved is the starting point, that your first and most essential task is to rest in and receive his finished work, that God is quite fond of you, and there is nothing you can ever do to change that. For Martha, for the Martha in us, that part of us that is plain worn out, right? I, I think you can feel this plain worn out from trying to prove ourselves to God or to others or even to ourselves. What if we started here with this question? What if we started the place of resting in God's love for us because he doesn't stand far off from us, but instead opens his arms and is ready to embrace us? What if we started to believe that what Jesus says about us is actually true, that the love that God the Father has for God the Son is the same type of love that he has for us? If we started here, receiving hospitality at the table of Jesus, sitting at his feet and being with him, over time we might just find ourselves becoming more like him. I pray this is our desire and that we are willing to follow through with it. It starts with belief. Our Christian experience would be more vibrant, would be more powerful if we started to believe and to live like the following. Energy to serve God and love our neighbor doesn't come through human effort. Energy to serve God and love our neighbor doesn't come through human effort. It comes by resting in the finished work of Jesus, contemplating his goodness and receiving his grace and truth. Galatians 5.1 says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. You do not have to work for God's love. When that sinks in, it will free you from feeling that you have to work to gain the love of God or to gain the love of others or even to gain the love of yourself. Learn from your own experience. Learn from Martha. Learn from Mary. Sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from him, accepting all that he treat, teaches as truth and liberty and salvation. Amen and amen.